TED Audio Collective. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now, your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with designer John Bielenberg and advertising legend Alex Bogusky about branding in the age of global warming, impact entrepreneurs, and their new project to change the corporate world called Common. If we can enable designers to realize, hey, you're more than you might think in terms of someone who can make great posters. You're actually a person who can design great companies. Here's Debbie Millman. Alex Bogusky is a celebrated ad man. He's one of the founding partners of Crispin, Porter, and Bogusky, which Advertising Age has called the agency of the decade. Recently, he quit advertising altogether and joined up with his advertising colleague, Rob Shuham, to start a new type of sanctuary called Fearless Cottage. He also teamed up with designer-entrepreneur John Bielenberg in a project that aims to reinvent capitalism for the common good. The project is called Common, and here to explain what it's all about and to talk about the interesting twists and turns in their careers are two of the three guys behind Common, Alex Bogusky and John Bielenberg. Welcome to Design Matters. Thanks. Thanks. Alex, you have an interesting statement on Fearless Cottage's website, wherein you say that fear is the mortal enemy of innovation and happiness. And I want to know if you both feel that way, and if so, why? It's probably the enemy of a lot more things than that, love included. But yeah. uh, fear is the enemy of life, right? It, it, it can it can get in the way, and uh, yeah, we all experience it, and. Um, for me, early in my career, I, I just knew anything I was doing it creatively, fear would ruin. So if I was painting in art school and, and I was afraid, I could see it in the work and it, and, it, and it ruined it. And then later in my advertising career, one of my biggest jobs I felt was to create a, a culture within the agency of fearlessness. People had to be encouraged that it was okay and it was safe if they were ever going to do wonderful work. And then as, you know, as I got out of advertising, I just realized that it went beyond that too. For us as a culture to innovate, um, for us to take on new sources of energy and move away from fossil fuels, which is a big passion of mine, we have to move away from fear. 
John, what about you? You're looking at Alex with big eyes. <laughs> well, I wasn't involved in the Fearless Cottage when that was founded. But what I like about the word is it, it can be read two ways. So it's fearless. Right, well, it's right? with a capital L. And then be fearless. Because I, I do think that there's um, – when you're averse to risk, right, you hunker down. I mean you see that I think in America right now, people just afraid and hunkering down. Versus, you know, just having the courage to go off and do amazing things. So I, I really like that double meaning of it. Because we do have fear. And I, I feel like I'm afraid often. But the process is trying to fear less and then move move through it. Can you do the things that you need to do to move past it? I think it's, it's critical. You know, the, what's the phrase, uh, paralyzed with fear? It's a real thing. And if, if you were a person who wanted to stop progress, say you wanted to take the country and leave it as it is right now and not have it change because it benefits you, you would try to create a culture of fear. Now, I've spent a lot of time over my career thinking about fear. I, I have often felt not only paralyzed by fear, but also motivated <laughs> by fear. But in thinking about and in, in researching why we are so afraid as a species, you can't help but come back to the way our brains are formed and yeah. that reptilian part of the brain that right. keeps us wanting to be safe, that keeps us wanting to be in positions where we don't allow ourselves to be vulnerable. It works really well if you're a deer, right? <laughs> Actually, it doesn't really work that well. No, it does. Deers freeze, right? And then you can't see them, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So why why do you think that there's this inner struggle that we are constantly faced with as a species in terms of being so afraid of innovation, about being so afraid to change? Because that's really what it is, that change that we feel so vulnerable and defenseless against with the need to achieve and with the need to be successful and with the need to do important things. Part of it is the way our brains are hardwired, these synaptic connections, right? So as we develop, we have these kind of ways of living in the world. I think of it as an operating system that's installed, right? This, <laughs> right. You, we know how to behave today is talking to you, right? There's this pathway, direct pathway, allows us to exist in the world. And I think there are people that are sort of randomly created and selected that don't have this, that create new pathways. I call it thinking wrong, right? And they, they don't have that same mechanism. Say Picasso might be one of those. Einstein might have been in a different way. And um, so I think that right now, my, my belief is that we live in a time that absolutely there's a compulsion and a critical need for changing the status quo. And so I think that ratio between how many people are, are stuck in that, you know, their synaptic connections, heuristic biases, ways of doing stuff, and the number of people that are just randomly wrong thinkers, innovators, inventors, creators, that we have to change that ratio we have to teach more people to be fearless, you know, and to be courageous and make things happen. Yeah, I think it's an evolution, you know, where we're, we're evolving. I'll just, you know, beat on the deer metaphor a little <laughs> bit more because it works well. If the biggest danger is a wolf, you can freeze 
it works really poorly when the biggest danger is a car. And I think we're experiencing that as our uh, world changes around us. Our fears that maybe worked well for several thousand years, you know, they don't work when we have to evolve at the speed we have to evolve right now. I think there's never been a time where it was required of humanity to make the evolution that we're about to make. And, and I think we're in luck because brain science is saying, look, we're, yeah, we're hardwired, but we also can change the wiring. And not like I can change the wiring in my kids and the grandkids, but you can change your own wiring if you spend time working on your fears. If you have a process, a meditation, whatever it is, you can change how you, how you think. So do you have those types of processes? I, I, like, to, I like to meditate. You know, I don't do it enough. And, and, uh, but, yeah, there's absolute benefits that come from it. Now, do you think that a lot of your motivation to get past fear is because of any profound concern or fear within yourselves? And I'm asking this to both of you about being mediocre. Is that a fear of, of either of yours? <laughs> yeah, I would say absolutely. And I think my fear is about not doing enough, right? So I describe my my career as this ladder. And I never made any huge leaps. You know, I never worked for Pentagram or anything. So I touched every single rung of that ladder. And so I I describe it as the first thing is, you know, going to school, design school, then getting a job, and then maybe winning an award. And then maybe it's having your name on the door, making some money, building a firm. And I was at a point where I wasn't at the top, but I could see the top and I knew people at the top. And I describe it as like going to a store and you try on a jacket and everyone goes, hey, that jacket looks good. And you're like, really? I'm not, you know, really? It doesn't. Yeah. No, you should wear that jacket. And so for me, back to the question, it was this kind of, is it significant? You know, am I doing the thing that fuels me, you know, am I using my talents, you know, on the right stuff? So I think it was definitely a fear of mediocrity on that ladder thing. And then there was a point where you're really sort of evaluating what you're climbing to. And then this sort of adjustment, like, okay, this is what I know how to do. This is who I know, you know, how can I then point it in a different direction? Alex, what about you? Ever, ever, stare mediocrity right in the face and say, that isn't going to be me? I was so competitive early on in my career. I remember I would drive home every day and there was this really good design studio on the way home from from, uh, the agency. And I would just shoot a bird out the window of my car. (laughs) It was like a daily thing that I did. And I, you know, I think I was sort of out of my mind in terms of... Jealousy or competition. No, not jealousy, just competition, yeah. And was very, very driven. And, and uh, yeah, it, at one point, I felt like I definitely made it to the top of whatever the advertising mountain is. And um, I didn't find it unsatisfying necessarily, just like it's done. That was really my thing was like, OK, I, I, don't, I can't find another challenge in this particular area. Part of it, I think, is when you go over 40 you actually do start to care about other people and, and mentoring and other gen- – like it happened like a switch went off for me. I really did not care about mentoring people. I didn't care about helping people with, with their careers until, you know, post-40. 
Now, you both made very significant changes in your careers. There's a real line in the sand in both of your careers if you look at the trajectory of the work that you've done. And you both very specifically, consciously made a decision to stop doing the kind of work you were doing and then start something new and do different types of work. Was there any anguish in making that decision? Did you did you struggle with making the decision to get off that successful path? I mean, John, it's arguable as to whether or not you feel like you've reached the top of that ladder. I mean, there are many people that will look at your career and say you were at the pinnacle of your career in that regard. And Alex, certainly creative director of the decade, <laughs> the title that you had from Advertising Age. You but the both... thing that more people look at is how much money you're making. Well, that's that, uh, I'm going to get to that. Yeah. I'm going to get to that because I think that having a certain financial security does buoy that transition in a way that maybe wouldn't work quite as well for others. But in terms of the, the actual emotional decision, did you worry about whether you were making the right decision or, or did you just know all along that that was something that you needed to do and profoundly felt secure about it? I think ours are very different because Alex was a cliff. I mean, he drove off, you know, a cliff versus mine was very gradual, you know. So I didn't give up what I was doing. I was just doing that part-time, doing Project M part-time and now Common. So for me, it wasn't this dramatic, oh, my God, what have I done? You know, how can I support my family? But there's a certain anxiety around that, I think, you know, and people, uh, my friend Michael Vanderbilt thinks I'm nuts. You Why? Know. Why? Oh, for leaving, you know, San Francisco and the school I was teaching at California College of Arts, and he just loves it. He is like a shark in his element, you know, just perfectly suited. And when I moved to Maine about 10 years ago, he just thought I was, you know, it's like, death to my career, right? So, you know, I got some of that. I think we, now with Common, now I have partners, you know, versus before I was kind of solo. and it's Support just, network. Yeah. It just feels like now there's, there's more energy, more resources, more exposure. And, you know, it feels a lot less anxious for me now. It feels like we're on the right path for doing stuff. We don't know exactly where it's going and maybe we'll get to that, but um, the general direction feels right. So Alex, you mentioned um, the financial security, obviously, when, or maybe not so obviously to some of our listeners, but when you left Crispin Porter and Bogusky, you, you were comfortable financially. And so... Yeah, you, you know, we, we um, I've done really well in advertising, but part of, uh, well, there's two parts of that. One is you have money, but you you know, I, I gave a, I gave a talk right afterwards, and I, and I said, "Look, it's it's cost me t- about twenty million dollars to give this talk to you, you know, and for me, it's worth it. I doubt that you'll find it worth it, um, <laughs> but I could not wait to get out. Like I wanted, I don't know if I drove off a cliff. I definitely jumped off a cliff, you know." And I took off my golden parachute and then jumped off a cliff. And and uh, I loved my career for many, many years. And then the last couple, I really didn't like what I was doing. And and so I just couldn't wait to get out. I'll you just say get... why I loved my career, though. Oh, okay. I'd love because to hear Because my values were absolutely aligned with what I was doing. So Burger King and cars and... Well, my early part of my career was little tiny companies. And I love little tiny companies. 
there's there's an energy and there's a passion to those companies and growing those companies and and like actually unlocking somebody's sort of dream and helping them achieve that is really rewarding. Um, and then anti-tobacco, working on the Truth Campaign, you know, it was just really special, mostly because we got to invent something. We were the client as much as we were the as we were the agency. And then Mini was very much like that too, because there were only five people that worked at Mini when we worked on that account. So we were Mini in many ways. Do you drive a Mini? I did when when we had the account. I be, I do this thing, which well, I always believed it's method advertising. You have to absolutely do all the things. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And then later, I couldn't do method advertising, though. So now with Burger King, for me, I grew up as a kid in Miami. That was the local burger joint. It was like if you were in Miami, you did not like McDonald's and you loved Burger King. So when Burger King came to us, they're struggling. They're firing people. They're laying off people. That felt like a calling to me at the time. What I didn't realize that I believe I realize now is that that Whopper from my childhood, right, is not the same item that you can go and buy now. You know, in the industrialization of food and what's in food, it's completely synthetic and very, very different. doesn't do things like rot, right, (laughs) which you like to see from your food. (laughs) Um, At the end there, though, my values were going one way maybe going more extreme in one direction. And my, and my clients were so big. And to have any impact on the agency, they had to be so large. And you dealt with people that wanted to do the right things in these corporations, but they, were, they felt trapped. I don't think that they were, but you could tell that they felt trapped, that they couldn't financially make the moves that would be right for the long term. Yeah. I mean, one of the things about working with large corporations that I've found is how much fear exists. People are really operating out of fear as opposed to power. And and that's a very debilitating and somewhat demoralizing experience to go through over and over again. That's why Fearless came with me as I as I leapt out of that, because I, I really didn't want to be part of that anymore. And I wanted to agitate maybe my own industry and others from the outside, because I didn't feel like I could do it from the inside. It was frustrating to see your best ideas almost automatically rejected because there just wasn't the courage in in these companies. So you started Common. Now, I believe you started that with Rob initially, and then John joined. Is that correct? Well, I don't even, I don't think that that's real. We had ideas about doing something. Yeah. So the the sequence, I think, How was... How did you meet? Yeah, Let's well, talk th- about I, that. that's what I was going to yeah. tell. So yeah. we had this mutual friend named Rob Walker, who's a writer. <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah. Rob was a guest on, on Design right. Matters He's a couple great. of months Amazing. ago. So he had met Alex, and then I met, I got together with him in Savannah, and he said, you guys, you should meet Alex Boguski. And I said, yeah, I know who he is. We've never met. He goes, okay, I'll introduce you over email. And I was in Boulder. We got together for breakfast and just talking, you know, about what we were doing. No, (laughs) the way I describe it is two sort of things resonating at the same harmonic frequency, right? So it's like, oh, you're you're trying to do this. I'm doing this, you know. And so it was really it just felt right. You know, that was less than a year ago that we met. Yeah. And then you can describe the U-Fuse process. So we, we met, said, you know, let's try to figure something out together. And then... Yeah, I, I, I got exposed to what John was doing. And then um, somehow 
this group of folks that uh, they they what do they do? What do, what do they call what they do? It's, it was like it was like a, a creative intervention basically, and they came to me and they said, "We've been watching what you're up to. We think we can help you. Does your life feel like this? You know?" And they had this diagram of arrows going every direction. I'm like, "Yeah, man, that is a diagram of my life." And were they Jehovah's Witnesses? No, no, <laughs> no. They're strategic consultants basically. Okay, and so. Rob and I went out there and we spent a week where they kind of unlock your vision and, and, and your values and then begin to help you put that into a structure that, you know, might be something like a business. Can you tell us what it's, this it's organization like Est, is called? It's like Est for Business. It and, doesn't exist anymore, actually. Oh, darn. I was already like <laughs> mentally signing up and going. And Well, we could probably do something for you with Common because <laughs> ultimately what's happened is they've, they've joined Common. Oh, okay. Several, several okay. of the folks. But, so do you do this for individuals or do you do this for organizations or both? They do it for both. Anyway, it was, it was the kind of thing I would never have done. I so would what made been, you decide? I would have been too hard, you know. Can, yes. you, can you use profane language on this? Absolutely, show? please do. So, 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 you know, you, you hear the phrase like "harden the fuck up." That yeah. was very much like I think what I was like for most of my career, and now I'm always thinking, just soften the fuck up. <laughs> and, Why were you so hard? Why were you hard on yourself? Were you hard on others? I mean, what was that about? Well, I just was very competitive. I was brought up to be competitive. I came out of motorcycle racing, and you know, my dad's famous sort of line to me was it's not enough to win somebody else has to lose it was wow. about yeah, right yeah <laughs> <That's harsh>. yeah <laughs> you got to make someone suffer son <laughs> um and kind of love dads right <laughs> yeah some wisdom so, so this process we went out there we did this process it was truly amazing and 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 having met met john i kind of wove what he was doing into this idea without asking him, obviously, I just basically built a company around him. Wow! <laughs> and so, then came back and said, "Do you think you might want to do this? Check this out." So John had Project M, which I'd love for you to also describe to our listeners that might sure. not be aware of it. And then I'd like to talk about how you've woven Project M and Common and Fearless all together and what you're doing. Sure. So Project M started after meeting this guy Samuel Mockby who founded the Rural Studio for Architecture and taking young, mainly white kids from the suburbs of Alabama to rural Hale County, one of the poorest counties in in Alabama, if not America. And they just build these amazing structures, you know, houses, community centers, baseball parks. And I saw him speak at um, California College of Arts, and I just thought – this is incredible. Not only are they doing this cool stuff, you know, that gets into the Whitney Biennial and, you know, is celebrated at the highest level of architecture, but I've believed it transformed the lives of these young architects, right? That the arc of their career was different, having gone through this relatively short period of time with Mockby. And so I thought, why isn't there something like this for graphic design? I would love to do that, you know, take young people at a critical point in their lives, mentor them. And I kind of think of it as 
injecting them with a retrovirus like herpes, right? That maybe it doesn't come out right away, but eventually it'll come out in their careers, right? And <laughs> it's a very, very interesting <laughs> metaphor. Yeah, I wouldn't use that. One, I but, wouldn't have yeah, either. Yeah. But like a really awesome herpes. <laughs> yeah. A love bug. <laughs> yeah. So I, I loosely modeled it on the rural studio, taking a bunch of young creative people to usually distressed places like Detroit or Alabama or East Baltimore, and then inventing projects in a short period of time out of their experience being there. And then how do you get it done, right? So it's not just enough to come up with some cause or cool project to do, but how do you do that? And so we've been doing that for about nine years now all over the world, Germany, Costa Rica, Iceland after the financial collapse. And there's a, you know, it doesn't generate any revenue. I was going to say, how do you fund it? It's self-funded by the participants. So each of them pays a certain amount that really just covers the expenses, the housing and food and project costs. So, and what I've seen over the past nine years is an increasing appetite and desire on the part of young people to do stuff like this. I can't even – I can't keep up with the demand. Yeah, I do I'm think ac- it's very much a part of this generation. Right, right. And I think they're anxious about the future. You know, you've got you know, climate change and peak oil and de- species extinction, deforestation, rise of the middle class, China, India, go on and on and on. And I think it's different than the 60s where people, you know, young people may not have agreed, but it was really drop out, right? And this is, I feel, engage, right? So they want to be social entrepreneurs and they want to change the world. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So I, what we're trying to do at Common and at Project M is make this the coolest thing you could possibly do, right? And by cool, I mean relevant and interesting, you know, and that's a big part of what you know how we're approaching comedy. There is something really cool about what you're doing and how does that how do you create cool? How do you make something so intriguing and enticing? It just and... comes natural to both of us. <laughs> really anything we touch just gets cool. Well, that I would agree with that, but it's yeah, not I'm actually, enough of I'm an actually answer. only half kidding. I know, I, I know. Yeah. I don't I don't actually think you're kidding well, at all. I just want to know how that how do you ignite cool? How yeah. do you how do you manifest cool? You have to answer that question, <laughs> well, gentlemen. I, I can answer. You get t shirts first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's part of it. But okay. I think the common pitch event, maybe you can describe that because yeah. I think that's an engineered thing to create cool. Yeah, just to go back just a, a step though, when when they at Fuse said, Look, you know, you want to achieve fairness and a and a place of equality on earth, how would you do that? That was really their question. And then we drew a diagram and we started to diagram it out. And a big part of it was this idea of impact entrepreneurs and design thinking and designers. You know, designers being a different kind of person that have some special capabilities. And we thought if we can em- enable designers to realize, hey, you're more than you might think in terms of someone who can you know, make great posters. You're actually a person who can design great companies. And could we make a machine that helped them achieve that if they were interested? So that's part of it. And then it's really important to us that it is the coolest thing you could do. Just like, you know, in the 60s, it was very, very cool to join the peace movement, right? 
And one of the things that was what I don't know if this is part of being cool, but I think it's important is like you could get laid if you were in the peace <laughs> movement, right? Better than you could if you weren't. So that's really why people want to be rock stars, right? Yeah, I mean, that's an element of cool is just how sexy is it, right? If if you choose this this direction, will people perceive you in a, in a different way? Well, will they perceive you as special or will they perceive you as superior? And if you look at impact entrepreneurs and you look at that, that area, it is deadly not cool right now. So being an entrepreneur is pretty cool, but we want to make a, a brand. We want to make a statement that if you're a kid in college right now and you're thinking about what to do with your life, I, I hope that the idea of making a company that doesn't have a social impact aspect to it is just lame. It just doesn't even make sense. Like, why would you do that? The very genesis of, of corporations was they had to have a social impact. And then the laws changed, and now anyone can have a corporation, and you can, you know, you can sell sugared water or whatever it is, and, and there is no charter that you need to be doing any good. We need to flip that, and we don't need to flip it for a small part of the culture. We need to flip it for the majority of the culture. Like almost every business, let's just say every, every business 100 years from now needs to have a social impact. Now, when you say social Positive impact, social impact, what, so they it, do have a negative I was going to say impact. that there's yeah. plenty of social impact. Yeah. And then there are also there are organizations, there are people, corporations, politicians that all have their own definition of what a social impact will be. And I think we've seen a lot of corporations riding the coattails of a green movement by ultimately greenwashing. And and they're doing that only to be able to have that halo of coolness that has been uh, generated by this movement now. That is something I think we'll always combat because people, corporations, politicians want to be seen as doing the right thing. And if this is deemed the right thing, then of course we're going to do it too. Every um, wave of consumerism has had, I think, some aspect to it of trying to get something over on people. And and I find that to be quite sad. But I also think that's the way of the world in many ways to try to make money or to try to sell things, which ultimately is generating income for them. Yeah, the profitability I, you, as the carrot. Well, capitalism has a dark side to it. I choose it because it has lifted more people out of poverty than anything else, right? And the reason why we can have these discussions is because it's mostly worked, but it's also been extremely destructive and, and it's on a path to not work and, and in fact sort of destroy itself unless you change the sort of fundamental aspect of what we believe is okay. I have a friend, Hunter Levins, and and, uh, she wrote a book called Natural Capitalism, is in the green space, has been forever. She loves greenwashing. And and the reason why is, you know, she said, you can't greenwash without several good things happening. Either you get busted and you get in trouble, or it works, and then you notice that people like it and you do more. And not more greenwashing, but you take further steps. Right. And so... That's very interesting. I that's, thought it was, That's I, actually kind of brilliant. Yeah. I think it's really the... <laughs> the fact that greenwashing exists is a good sign, the, yeah. the, you know, and, and so you've got programs like 1% for the Planet. I think every corporation should do things like that. The difference between that where it's sort of a, an adjunct at the end of your process and, a, and an impact entrepreneur like a Tom Shoes is Tom's has it built into his business model. Like they will do good 
And the amount of good is determined by how well they do with the core of their business, right? So two for one is a beautiful thing. We're seeing it, you know, it was started with, well, it probably started before, but with those laptops, Tom's has done it. A friend of mine's doing a condom company called Sir Richard's. It's a brilliant company. You buy a condom, another condom goes to uh, a place of need. Why would you buy Trojans or anything after that? Suddenly it becomes the coolest condom. In fact, you want to leave them out. Right. <laughs> You're not even ashamed. As a badge, badge yeah. value. Yeah. What, what, what is going to give you cachet uh, to others? So talk about common. What exactly is common? You take that. <laughs> <laughs> it really started with this idea of a shared global brand called Common. And so we use um, Virgin as an example. Virgin exists across over 300 different businesses, right? And, and people are comfortable. People don't realize that. But right. Yeah, but, you know, the airlines and vacations and brides or whatever it is. Water. Right. Rarely are corporations like that. They'll create sub-brands. So we think of common like that, that can be a global brand. The difference is that we're going to share it, right? So it'll be cooperatively owned. You can become a member of common. You can be certified by common, be a common joint venture, or you can be a common company, right? So we're, we're opening up that brand to be shared. And then embedded in that are some core values like transparency and sustainability and collaboration and community, right? And so, so it, it means those things. If you see common on something, it means those things, whereas virgin means party, you know, to use a shorthand. Um, I used to work on the brand. So if you put virgin on bridal, you know that it means sexy, sexy. Yeah. yeah. You, you put it on a, on a pizza shop, it's sexy pizza, party pizza, you know. And so could you do the same thing? I mean, you know, as branders, we know that you can. We can, we can create a different set of statements that can work across a lot of verticals. A good model to think about the brand is if you think about the um, Creative Commons as a license. Are you familiar with yes. that? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so Creative Commons is a way to take a copyright, which everything in America, when you produce it, it's already copyrighted. And the problem is, what if you want to share it? You sort of can't suggest that to people. And Creative Commons came in and said, through overlaying our license that sits on top of the basic copyright license, you can say, I will share it under these conditions. Common is the first collaborative mark. So we put CM after the logo. And so, you know, trademarks are controlled by the Trademark and Patent Office. If you see a trademark on something, if you see it on Virgin or anything else, it means back the fuck off. Right. Right. Do not touch this. This is our Mickey Mouse, not yep, your Mickey it's Mouse. It's owned. And so, you know, is it possible in the same way Creative Commons has, has tweaked what a copyright can be, can we do that to brands? We'd like that to happen with other brands, too. I think that, you know, it would be neat to see other people come into the space and say, under the right conditions, we'll share this brand. So, you know, you could just apply for the brand would be one of the simplest ways to work with the common brand. And then some of the more, not necessarily complex, but some of the more organic are the companies that will be funding and incubating through the process. So if I wanted to start a food brand, for example, I would come to you and I would say, John, Alex, I want to create this food brand. I want to call it Common. It's going to achieve these things in the marketplace. It's going to be this amount sustainable. It's going to be this amount giving back. You would then be able to decide whether or not you wanted me to create the Common food brand. Is that correct? Or? I think that's pretty close. Okay. You know, food would be a little broad. Like we probably wouldn't say we're going to work with you on common food 
it might want to be a little bit yeah, more specific. I'll, I'll, I'll than make that. it more simple. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I wanted to create a, a, a common, co- yeah, common yeah. coffee. I yeah. could come to you, and then you would assess the business plan mm-hmm. and the distribution model, and then you would say yes or no. Yeah, that's one way. Another way is you could be an existing brand. You could be Converse, and you could, you know, feel like I'd like to carve out a, an aspect of what we're doing and create a common shoe. And how would that work? How would Converse do that with you? Or how could they? Let's just say that it was open to any type of interpretation. How would you hope that Converse could do that for you or with you? It's very much the same. Like, what's the business plan? How would you produce it? Would it match the values of Common? And if it would, then, yeah, we would move forward. And would it be called Converse Common or Common Converse? Would it be Converse with a CM at the end? Have you thought about how the sort of brand architecture would work? Yeah, I, I think we thought about it a lot. And I, the original idea was everything would be common, right? It would common shoe or common sneaker or whatever. I think lately what we've decided is we're not going to be so rigid about it. I'm wearing a coffee common T-shirt right now. So there are those cases, but there, it could be um, a joint venture. It could be a converse name, you know, and then have a CM after it or a you know, joint common venture. You know, I think there are lots of so different ways. it's like TEDx, ways. It, right? It, it, it's similar. It. Yeah. yeah. TEDx is a good, yeah. good example. That's one of the only examples of a shared brand that I can think of. Mm-hmm. And they've done it remarkably well. I mean, they yeah. really have maintained the yeah. standards, it seems. I think one of the challenges is, like, how quickly can we have good enough examples where people sort of intuitively get it? Right. So, we, you know, we, we've got little experiments that we do. You know, we've experimented with Common Cycles and Coffee Common. And all of those have just been really for us to learn. And through that, we have learned a lot and we've, you know, been adjusting what our, what our approach will be. Eden uh, um, Full. Full came to Common Pitch had a, a brilliant presentation. She's got a uh, something called Sun Saluter, which takes a $600 solar tracker for solar panels and brings it down to about 10 bucks. allows you to build it, you know, in, in bamboo. Obviously great for large parts of the world. You know, we could do something. If, if she went through our process, it might be Sun Saluter, a, a common venture. So we'll do some stuff like that too. We think that that's less motivating, that master brands are motivating to consumers. In what way? Certification brands like uh, Good Housekeeping Seal and things like that, they're not that motivating, whereas consumers make decisions about the master brand. Like, do I want this water or that water? Do I want Dasani or do I want, you know, it, it, it matters less, those, those other certification brands. Sure. But we'll, we'll fold it into the portfolio. Now, with Eden, you know, I think Sun Saluter is not the greatest. I would actually right. encourage her to do Common Sun, sun yeah. or something. But a lot of what we do is we just support impact entrepreneurs through events like Common Pitch. And it has nothing to do with us really trying to create deal flow or anything. It's just we think this is a cool space and we want a lot of people to get exposed to it. And that's our business. Yeah, I should probably describe a little bit about Common Pitch. That was going to be my next question. What is Common Pitch? (laughs) On um, the online website platform, you know, we solicited uh, proposals for social enterprises, right, by young entrepreneurs and got uh, 80 or so, you know, globally curated that down to 10 really solid ones and then did a one-night event where they got to pitch five minutes or so each. We had panels of celebrity judges. It's sort of like 
TEDx cross with Pecha Kucha cross with American Idol. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds it was, a little bit like The Voice. <laughs> it was at the Boulder Theater, 700 people. We had a rock band, a great indie band called Tennis. And it was a fun event. People were drinking. There was a bar. And three of the pitches were voted as the best, you know, first, second place, and audience choice. So people got to vote online. It was streamed live. And so this woman that Alex mentioned, Eden Full, she's to me like the poster child of kind of what I would love to see happen. So she's like much smarter than all of us combined in this room. Um, 19 years old from Calgary, Canada, went to Princeton when she was like 17 or something and invented this solar tracker, went to Ghana, right? Was that it, was the best quote yeah. was, you know, I really wanted to go to the ground and like work on the prototypes. And, and so I learned Swahili uh, and, then, <laughs> and then went. Ambitious. I, yeah. I had, a, I had a week before the, my trip to learn Swahili. <laughs> So she's created these solar panels, or she's created well, a prototype. The panels, and then the, it's the tracking device. The thing oh, okay. that so they're forty percent more efficient if they follow the sun during the day. And her solution is so brilliantly simple. It's called a biometal. So metals that are fused, so they they change their arc depending on the temperature. So as the day heats up, it changes the angle. It seems so simple that it's ridiculous. It's kind of amazing what happens when you know science and art. Yeah. So she won, I assume. She did not win, actually. She was People's Choice Award. So she's a Susan Boyle of your... uh... (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there were a lot of really brilliant presentations, and it was was an amazingly fun night. And, you know, the thing that we were most proud of was I think we really did make it sexy to be a social entrepreneur. The winner was a brilliant solar lamp called Bell Bell Lamp, and uh, they were a couple guys from Norway who had come up with this thing. And um, it basically replaces kerosene lamps, has its own built-in solar panel, is multifunctional, so it can be used as a as a overhead lamp, can also be used as task lighting, and can also uh, charge cell phones, which may not seem like a big deal, but cell phones are really important for the economies of, of a lot of these emerging nations. And uh, and the ability to get them charged is challenging. Yeah, I, I recently read that more people in India have cell phones than running water. Well, people have, you know, they've skipped the infrastructure that went right. with landlines. Yes. Yeah. These guys were product designers, and I think they won because their presentation was so resolved. It looked like, you know, a done deal, like you could just do this now. So they, you said that they, they won. What yeah. did they actually win? I, I don't remember the exact breakdown, but they won about $20,000 of work in kind. So, you know, any startup needs a lot of legal work. So they, they all got uh, many, many hours of legal work. They got design help from uh, Vermilion Design, volunteered, and a lot of other things like that. They also got some cash. I think the winner got $2,000 cash. Eden got a bag of cash. Which um, what we did is we passed the bag. Yeah. Well, we put the two thousand dollars in a bag in singles, which was really fun, <laughs> right? Because it's just overflowing in this bag. And then for the people's choice, we put it into the audience and said, "Fill this with cash, and then hopefully don't let it go out the doors." Right. right? <laughs> and, you know, in Boulder, Keep that it in the bag, <laughs> it really worked. It came back with six hundred bucks for for Eden, so that was really fun. The last thing I want to talk to you both about is the 
new Consumer Bill of Rights that, Alex, you're working on. I'm not sure, John, if you're as well. John F. Kennedy wrote the first Consumer Bill of Rights in 1962. You've amended that. You've updated that Bill of we Rights. We figured we're smarter than John F. Kennedy. Hey, you know, why not? So so can you talk about the original Bill of Rights, what the intentions were of that Bill of Rights? Because I think they were really noble. Yeah. And then now what you're hoping to do with the revised Bill of Rights. Yeah, it's pretty amazing because it's not like Kennedy didn't have a lot going on. You know, there was Cuban Missile Crisis. There was uh, the, yes, the 1962. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a crazy time. And yet he felt it was important to create this Consumer Bill of Rights. And It's a pretty amazing document. It instructs the FDA and other agencies that are there to protect us. It needed a little bit of updating because some things have changed. We couldn't genetically modify food at the time. So we called things like that out. The the document is important for people to realize, I think, that that exists. So part of it is just to remind people, you know, this is there. When the FDA does things that align with big corporations and don't align with your interest in protecting you, they're essentially breaking the law. So just know that and, you, and go back to that document. And we, we've made a poster of it. You know, we want to make some, some little booklets so people can, you know, have it with them and refer to it. Because when you're shopping, there's probably more times than not that you might be surprised that your rights are being violated. Well, it it seems to me that in order for a Bill of Rights to really be broadly successful and, and embraced, that corporations would have to give up a lot. And this is, I think, particularly true for the giant corporations we that are selling. Get, we want to get corporations to sign the Bill of Rights. Why do you think they would? So far, I don't think they have. Well, I, I mean, <laughs> it gets back to what we were talking about before. Well, how do we make this something that is cool, that people will want to participate in yeah. because of what it gives them as well? Technology is bringing on something that we probably talk about a lot, which is transparency. And consumers right now are in an important place. They can capture the transparency that's beginning to be out there, and they don't, they don't have to worry about whether companies are going to tell them what's happening. They can use tools to know what's happening real time. I don't know if you know goodguide.com. Yes. yes. That's an amazing resource. And I don't know how long this window will exist where we'll have access to this information, where we can act on it. I, I would encourage everybody to begin to act on it. You know, like have apps like Good Guide on your browser. There's a browser app. You can have a mobile app of it. And then make your buying decisions based on what your values are. I come from branding where we – what was branding during most of my career? It was the creation of a lie that you'd put in front of the. I don't, I don't want to be overly cynical, but it's branding is a story that you put in front of, of a company. It's kind of going away. I mean, that's the other reason I probably got out of advertising is if we're lucky, brand won't be anything other than a real-time actual representation view of what's happening, right? So the story goes away, and the only story you have is like, what are you really doing? Yeah, it really it bothers me when people say that brands are stories because I, stories... I'm and glad to hear unless that. Unless they're bothers memoirs, <laughs> they're, yeah. they're fake, they're, they're, they're created. But a lot of people get excited about that idea of brand stories. I always thought it was frightening. Well, it, it, it's a construct. If, if brands are constructs, if a story is a construct, then what you're saying is that it's a construct of a construct which is manipulative. There's a, there's a way, you know, you can say that, hey, as human beings, we understand our world through story. That's true. 
we use stories and metaphors and analogies to understand our world. So given that, and given the fact that there is this potential transparency, the story doesn't have to be some historical thing or some fantasy. It can be a well-told story about, hey, yesterday, this is what this company did. Right now, this is what's in this product. Here are the 10 things that are dangerous in other products, and they're not in this one. I mean, I think, you know, you mentioned that window. The window is open right now. It might just be open a crack, but I think that technology is giving us the power to hold corporations accountable. Yeah. And when people talk about corporations being evil or products being evil, who's creating that? Who Who is doing these things? People. People are doing these things. So if we can hold ourselves accountable to what we create and what we make and what we mark, I think it, it does blow open opportunities that we've otherwise not been able yeah. to, to have. But I don't think people, I mean, you've worked with a lot of people. Have you come across like evil capitalists? in your travels? <laughs> Not a lot. You know, the way I thought about it when I was working with corporations is that they exist to drive shareholder value and really short-term, quarter to quarter. It just drives them forward. The people come and go, but that's at the center of the corporations. So it's not like evil people. It's that they will do what's required to drive, you know, short-term shareholder and what value. There's, and, and just in the in the way in which you're declaring that, what a shareholder value. That right. is money that's going right. to the people that right. have invested in the corporation and therefore... Right. Well, be- and that's also like, you know, more than half of all stock is owned for how long? Do you know the duration? No, I actually don't. Less than a second. So when we talk quarter... Like, that's what people are able to hold in their minds. But that's long-term. Stocks are not held for a quarter. They're not held for a year. They're held for less than a second. And so the real market and what's happening, it's happening. It's like a slot machine. It's machines. Yeah. It's machines and it's betting. It's dangerous when you're beholden to just one idea. The idea that, that corporations are beholden to that is a fallacy, too. Many CEOs will say, if I don't maximize this quarter, I can be liable. And in fact, it has rarely happened. And when it has, the courts have supported the management. So you can make long-term decisions for your company. So we're behaving based on a myth that we have to maximize short-term value. It's not true. How can we change this? You look at a company like Patagonia, right? So Patagonia, it's a for-profit company, right? But at its core, it's got Yvon Chouinard, who's kind of a lunatic who's passionate about the natural world. And he doesn't even look at the P&L. I mean, he's been really open about that. And so that's a sustainable, successful brand company and employs people, does things responsibly. So what's different? Well, it's because Chouinard is there, right? And so if you look at that, that's an occasional thing, right? You might have Tom's Shoes, you know, that has that. But I could probably count 10 companies, right, out of millions. Right. (laughs) Right. So how do you inject this idea of capitalism and corporations and business with something, you know, like these core values of common? How do you make that just part of the platform rather than short-term shareholder value, right? So that's kind of where I... I think you start with young people. Yeah. Like you talk a lot about 26-year-olds. Right. You know. What about 26-year-olds? He digs them. <laughs> <laughs> Not in the way that you All might right, we think. Can, we can do the potty mouth thing, but I don't want to go there. <laughs> 
Well, he should explain himself now. (laughs) Yes, he should, because he's blushing. So the way I think about it is if you think about people, we'll just say the older than 26, that are invested in the status quo. And, you know, the ultimate example would be executives at Exxon Mobil or something. There's no way they're going to change their behavior, right? Why would they? Yeah. So then you look at kids, my kids' age, 12 and 16, they're almost too young. We got to move, right? So we're seeing extreme climate change right now. And uh, so we got to go. So who is in that zone? And I I think of it between, you know, maybe 20 and 30, that these are people that you need to sort of get going on important things to change the status quo and move yeah. towards a positive future. So, so, so for boomers, there was Patagonia and there was uh, 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 Ben and Jerry's. I was say, yeah. until, right? until it got yeah. sold. Yeah. Ben and Jerry's. And, you, and that was enough for boomers. Like we were like, isn't that quaint and cool that we got a couple of companies like that? The next wave needs to be that all of capitalism transforms. So there are no companies left that don't have an impact mission, a positive impact mission. If it's at all possible to do that, and I have hopes that it is, how long do you think it'll take? 32 years. 32, 34 years. And how I'm did you ma- come to that? Just okay. made it up <laughs> you, look, just now. You, you said it that very convincingly. <laughs> Gentlemen, I, I have no idea. It has to happen. We don't really have a choice. We don't and, have a choice. Yeah. The way I think about it, you can just get bound up by this will never happen. How does this – is this going to work? To me, it's just about doing something, right? Just do something positive. And this is the way we think about common. We're just trying a bunch of stuff. We're authentically trying to make something happen, use our talents and networks to do that. And we don't know, you know, but we're just doing something, you know, because it's so easy to get in this downward negative spiral like, oh, there's no way this is ever going to happen in time. And time can be the thing that makes you afraid and freezes right. you too. So, you know, the, the question about how long, it kind of doesn't matter. You got to start. Well, thank you for not only doing a lot of stuff, but leading the charge. Thank you so much for being here today on Design Matters. Thanks for having sure. us. Sure. Yep. Thanks, Debbie. You can find out more about Alex Bogusky, John Bielenberg, and Common on the website www.common.is. Thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica and research by Jen Simon. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.